0: listening to Voices of Value, a selection of valuable insights designed to help you get more out of your professional and personal life through simple and easy-to-adopt life lessons. If you're keen to enjoy a better quality of life at work and at home, sit back and join the conversation with your hosts, Peter Kakos and Rick Rushton. Voices of Value, Rick Rushton here with my good friend Peter Kakos.
1: Pete, welcome.
2: Thanks, Rick. It's uh, it's great to be here from... uh, Very special place in the heart of uh, Paran in Victoria.
1: And the uh, epicentre of Pucker Up, which we'll give a very big plug to throughout our uh, episode today, where we're joined by Wayne Schwoss for those in non-AFL states, which I think our listenership is pretty minimal, let's be candid. I mean, most people love our AFL sort of references, but uh, for anyone who's followed AFL football, Wayne really doesn't need too much of an introduction, had a stellar career with the North Melbourne Football Club, went north to Sydney, is now a media analyst for Triple M, Uh, Does a lot of work uh, throughout the media on football, but really his passion is talking about the challenges with mental health and how he can be not just a a catalyst for change around that, but he facilitates a lot of great learning programs and makes sure that it is top of mind for everybody. We didn't start this podcast, Pete, really wanting it to be a mental health production, but we seem to be finding the more we find successful people, there seems to be an undercurrent there of people who have uh, found their success through dealing with adversity.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely, and it's a really important thing to to sort of get a grasp on, and I think you and I are just sort of learning at the infancy stage, aren't we, You're learning uh, so yep. much more about it, and it's great to have someone like Wayne on, who is going to enlighten us even more on, oh, I guess you call it an epidemic now in um, in Australia. And, uh, well, given the numbers, the numbers oh, don't lie. it's just so. ab- absolutely frightening, and, and, and what's been reported and so forth, So, um, and also to be a part of you know, just to be next to... Uh, you know, fellow North
1: Melbourne okay, fella let's as just well. Move on and that very quickly, it's been a challenging time for your club this week. <laughs> but uh, obviously, blue skies ahead in that North uh, sort of scenario, the Kangaroo scenario. But the, the the comment that I think made me absolutely resonate with Wayne when I first heard him speak was: If someone comes in uh, with a plaster cast around their arm, you know they've got a broken arm. No one comes in with a plaster cast around their head yet. They could have a challenge with their their mental setup. And so it was absolutely imperative that we got the great Wayne Schwoss online today.
2: Absolutely. And it's certainly on the back of, say, a Herald Sun article yep. uh, only a couple of days ago where the six Australian men commit suicide every day. And a new report uh, has just revealed that another 30,000 men every year call an ambulance when attempting suicide or even just when having suicidal thoughts. It's just um, just frightening, and ten thousand a year present to hospital emergency departments in a suicidal crisis.
1: It's a dark space, according bit. to this new yep. report. So um, it's a dark it, space, it, but we've got someone who can give us some light at the end of the tunnel, and it's not attached to an oncoming express train. It's someone who can give us the light of hope. And uh, to that end, we love to welcome to the microphone Wayne Schwoss. Welcome, welcome, Wayne. welcome.
3: Hello, Rick. G'day, Pete. Thank you very much. Very kind of you.
1: Well, our pleasure. And thank you for spending some of your very valuable time. You've just driven uh, the better part of God knows how many hours from Apollo Bay back into the centre of the city to uh, join. Us today, Wayne. You're uh, a bit of a an identity around this. What is as Pete just labelled an epidemic, but it's something that still a lot of people in the population, the mass population, just don't have a a grasp on, b an understanding of. But we believe it's now our absolute belief that every family listening to this will have someone in their immediate sphere who's going through this, either known or unknown. Would that be a fair assessment?
3: Oh, very much so, but I'd extend that to every person in Australia. I mean, we have a population of about 25 million people, and we are all impacted by mental health, either directly or indirectly, and we're all impacted either directly or indirectly because of this terrible, tragic, devastating issue called suicide. And what I mean by that is that there is someone within your immediate family, your extended family, your network of friends, your colleagues at work that is grappling with and very uh, bravely dealing with difficult conditions like mental health conditions. And I, I think that we've got to a position now in Australia where not only are we losing six men on average every day in Australia, we're losing eight people a day. 65,500 people attempt to end their lives every year in Australia. It's And that would make it the fifth largest city in Victoria and the 27th largest city in Australia and we have, and this is not to be critical and I don't want to make the comparison, but the reaction and the way that we deal with death is very different. What I mean by that is we've had a couple of really bad 24-hour periods on our roads in Victoria with people who have tragically lost their lives. That becomes a news story, a, a, a very important lead story for some news agencies and so it should be. A devastating 24 hours. We've lost four people on our roads. And to the people that have lost, to the families that have lost people recently, I don't don't want to diminish or be disrespectful because that is tragic and that is devastating. But we're losing eight people a day to suicide and we don't have the same response. We don't have the same attention. We don't have the same focus and we're not having the same discussions. And part of my daily motivation is that that needs to change. And I'm lucky with my organization to have that opportunity every day to be part of these discussions. To offer hope, mm. to offer a sense of connection, to offer a pathway, to offer an environment where people can feel confident that they can begin to talk about really complex issues so that they can get healthy and well again.
1: Yeah, and that's uh, when you hear those numbers, Pete, I mean, they just whack you right in the face. If you're not listening to that, I mean, I, I think I said to you yesterday, I, when I came home uh, and I saw this news article about this mass stabbing in Japan, and I thought, gee, that's interesting. And it was like one person, I think, and six injured. And then you hear those numbers about six people dying every day. We don't even hear about it. And you're so spot on. I mean, death is a very touchy little subject. But when you look at those numbers, hear those numbers, and think that we're talking about the fifth largest city in Australia each year. Victoria. Uh, Victoria, sorry, each year. We've got to really uh, get this address, put it up there, because nothing's going to be sort of changed unless we get it on the agenda, literally. Mm. We
3: can't expect to see the numbers go down of people that do eventually achieve the outcome mm. and that is to take their lives or the people that are attempting to take their lives until we we need to reframe the narrative. Mm. We need to change the language. We need to create safe spaces which allow people to come into those spaces and talk openly and honestly because the way that we've approached mental health and emotional well-being in Australia historically mm. is not working. and mm. that's not to be critical of anyone who is working in the area of mental health because, they are overwhelmed, they are under-resourced, they are underfunded, and we have a growing population of people that are in crisis that need professional help. But we've we've approached it in the same way historically through this country, and the numbers are going up. More mm. people are stressed, more people are living with mental health conditions, more people are attempting to take their lives, and more people are taking their mm. lives. Unless we come at this issue with a completely different approach and lens and mindset, which at Pucker Up we believe we're doing, yep. we can't realistically expect that the numbers of people that will be in these positions will go down. Mm. And I and our organisation refuse to stand by or sit sit idle, knowing that by the end of today, when we all go home to our families and put our heads on our pillows, eight eight people, eight family members, community members won't come home, and they estimate there's another 240 people attempting for every person that ends their life today in Australia. So it's a national issue and it's not a it's not a male or a female issue. This is a human being mm. challenge. Mm. And what I mean by that is men are 3 times more likely to achieve the outcome but there are three times as many women attempting.
1: Yeah. Mm. And that's frightening. Yeah, I remember when you shared that with an audience that we were at, and I, I just felt the hairs on the back of my neck just, just absolutely rise up. And I, I want to give some context around that, because your background as an elite sports person, the elite for any AFL is to stand on the dais at the last Saturday in September after the siren sounds, your team's in front, you win the ultimate prize. That for you was 1996. You get your medallion, you, you get the photo, you look on top of the world, you, you, you know, there's pictures of you holding the Premiership Cup talk us through that night after that celebration
3: I'll, I'll um, just it's, it's remiss of me not to mention this um, Pete and Rick that you know we're talking about a topic that I talk about all the time yeah but some of the some of your audience your listeners might be feeling under emotional stress I think mm. it's really important that if people who are listening to this mm. need professional yeah. support there yeah. are a number of things you can do just quickly before I answer yeah your absolutely call lifeline 13, yeah. 11, 14. 13 11 14 there are um, some amazing people there trained to be able to support you if you need that support Go and see your GP. Yeah. If you're not well emotionally, go and see your GP and talk to them openly and honestly, and I think that's really important that people – This conversation may trigger something for someone. It's really important that if that's the situation for anyone that listens to this podcast, there are organisations that can support you. Your GP will also do that. That's really, really important. Absolutely. 1996 Premiership was a remarkable experience. It's something that I have fond memories. Mm and I cherish it. I'm grateful for it. And every time I go to a grand final, and that's often – there's a bit of envy and there's a bit of jealousy because I went there once and I tasted the ultimate su- success. So every time I go there, I go, "Geez, I'd love to taste that again." '96, <laughs> I was lucky enough to be able to experience becoming a premiership player. But two years ago, I shared a post which shows a photo of me collecting my medal from Jack Dyer yep. on the dice in front of 94 and a half thousand people, put my hands up and I smiled. Um, on the surface to everybody bar two people at the ground, everyone would have assumed rightfully that that must be an amazing experience and it was. But the truth of that experience was that, I, yes, I'd just become a premiership player and played a reasonably solid game but I was suicidal. And I, I shared that because part of my mission is to educate people that we can walk past a homeless man or woman in the street and we'll make some assumptions. They've probably got a mental health condition. They may or may not. Mm. But you can. if you're a homeless person, you might have these conditions. If you're an alcoholic or you're addicted to drugs or you've gone through a marriage breakup, you're a high-profile AFL football player, or in the case of the richest man in Australia, James Packer, he's had to leave his job because he's got legitimate mental health conditions. Yep. I shared my post because I wanted to jolt people, to challenge them to start thinking a bit differently, and that is... It's not just the homeless person who might have these conditions. It can be a high profile, successful, well paid AFL football player yeah. that can be in the same position as somebody who's got no money who lives on the street. Mm and it doesn't matter our experience, it doesn't matter about our material wealth, it doesn't matter how successful or how many mistakes or how many times we've failed. What matters is these conditions do not discriminate. That's the reason why I shared the post.
1: Yeah, and I think that's the powerful message here that it doesn't really matter what your DNA gifts are and it doesn't matter where your upbringing was or could be or what your opportunities are. It's basically an illness that doesn't discriminate as you say. It's available to everybody. Well,
3: I I was well paid relative to the money that was in the game. I had a nice house. I lived in a really nice suburb and I had a Really nice two door sports coupe car. (laughs) So I had all of the things that people would naturally assume would make me happy. And when I began this journey of talking publicly about my experience, the question that I got asked the most, and I don't get asked this anymore, and perhaps that's a reflection on the audiences now not thinking that way, but the question I got, which used to drive me crazy in the beginning, was people would say, what did you have to be depressed about? You're playing Mm. footy, you're Mm. well-paid, you're doing something that the rest of us don't get the opportunity. It's a pretty
2: typical response, isn't
3: it? It is. But my response was always the same. It's got nothing to do with the money that you earn. It's got nothing to do with the job that you're doing. It's got nothing to do with being an AFL football player with a profile, being applauded and admired for what you're doing on a sporting field. Material possessions don't make us happy. What I've learned is that money gives us one of two things. Choice. Choice more money, more choice, less money, less choice. It doesn't equate to happiness because I had all of the things materialistically that you would think would make me happy. Mm. I was miserable. I was broken and I was lost emotionally and mentally. And, and and I think it's really important that people understand it's got nothing to do with what we do professionally or what we earn from a financial perspective. Because how else do you explain that James Pack has more money than any of us? Any yeah. of us in ten lifetimes, and he can't deal or work professionally because of these significant challenges that. And he's it doesn't had.
1: matter about the badge on your car. That was the same car that you pulled across on the Monash freeway and just started bawling. You didn't yeah. know why. And the two people who knew on the day when you're getting your medal
3: was my wife and my doctor Harry Younglick, who I spoke to again this morning. Those two people kept me alive. There you go. And so, so Harry was Harry
2: was the doctor at North, yeah.
3: Yeah, for thirty odd years. He's a he's a man that. Um, I love as much as my dad yeah. because of the role that he's played. Uh, without the support of my wife and, and Harry, I'm not sure where I'd be. Um, and, and I spoke mm. about this, you know, I, I talk all over the country and I talk about the fact that these two people never failed me, never gave up, never lost hope, kept picking me up when I when I had lost hope and I, I'd, I'd lost connection. And, and thankfully because of their commitment to me, I'm alive and I'm doing what I do mm-hmm. and I love it and I'm thankful for that. So, Wayne, that was 1996, um, you
2: realise the the ultimate for for how many budding footballers would want an AFL Premiership medal around their neck. I mean, it's just frightening to think of the number of people would just Absolutely. crave that and you didn't exactly have that ex- that that ultimate sort of experience internally. Ten years later, fast forward, 2006, that's when you announced that you were suffering from depression. Mm-hmm. So there was a gap there. Mm-hmm. And this is, uh, I guess, in my mind. it Initially, goes well. What happened in these ten years, and what took so long for you to to come out and and explain what you're actually going through? Yeah, there's
3: a bit in that, Pete. And and, and what I, you know, I I have this unbridled um, want to continually understand and learn and develop. And 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 I just, and this is not to be critical, because every time I have an opportunity to talk to people, it's about what it's it's two things one what message am i sending myself and two what message am i articulating to other people and please don't take this as a criticism but you mentioned the word suffer i don't use the word suffer okay. and this is not to be critical yeah and the reason and i said this last night in Apollo Bay where i delivered a presentation the reason i don't use suffer is that that means that i am a prisoner to the experience mm. i manage well-being i have fundamentally changed the narrative and the language that i use Because I want to empower myself and I want to be in control of my health. If I suffer from a mental health illness, I don't use illness either, it means that I'm a prisoner to the experience. I am the victim. I'm not in control of what is happening in my life. So over a 25-year journey, I have gone on this amazing ongoing journey of self-discovery, but I've also reflected on the messages that I send myself every day and the messages that I impart on other people. And that word is an opportunity for me to go, here's a chance for us to have a discussion for mm. people that might be listening. Yeah. You're not suffering. Yeah. That's a great distinction, don't, isn't don't, it? Absolutely. Words I know change this is, world, know this they, is really? easy for yep. me to say, mm. but I don't want anybody who is living with these conditions to think that they are suffering from these conditions. It is challenging, it is complex. But when we reframe the narrative away from suffering to no, my health is my responsibility. I'm going to take charge and I'm going to think about the messages that I'm sending myself and those around me. When I manage wellbeing, I'm in control. What that really means is I write the narrative moving forward. The mm. narrative behind me in the past is not determining what is happening in my life. That's a really important lesson that I've learned and it's been a hard lesson. And I'm glad you brought it yeah. up. And I know the intention wasn't yeah. anything untoward, mm. but if I don't live these values every day, then I'm nothing more than a hypocrite. And I'm glad that... That word was used because it's an opportunity to share with your audience that no, reframe your narrative, put yourself in charge of your own health and well-being. The other reason, the other word that I don't use is illness because yep. I think that's a sentence. Yep. It's negative. It, it means that, again, am I ever going to get over this? We manage health all the time. Why aren't we prepared to allow ourselves and give ourselves permission to manage our well-being all the time? So I have deliberately eliminated words in my vocabulary and I would extend that further to my role in the media. I have fundamentally changed the way that I comment on AFL football because I work in a space. If I'm not consistent with the way that I speak every time I'm in front of a microphone, then I'm a hypocrite. So these are things that I've learnt. Um, over, over the period of time, and I'm sorry to go off on that no, tangent no, it's a great no, that point because the yeah.
1: mental well-being was something I took away from your talk that that I thought just how how powerful is it that words change worlds? Just 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 shifting that sort of phraseology gives you some hope. How long did it take for you to? Understand it, acknowledge it, put your hand up. Hmm. I need help. Uh, your beautiful wife now, but she wasn't then. So she yep. had every chance to say, "Wow, this is all too tough for me." So it was pretty brave in many respects to 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 put a a public face to what you're going through at the time. Yeah. So if
3: I go back to answer that question, I think it's important to go back and give people context. So when I stood and collected my premiership medal in 1996. I was three years into my battle. So I was di- diagnosed on the 9th of August 1993 with depression. Wow. Two weeks before that, I was driving home from a training session on a Monday night. It was 9 o'clock. I was uh, vice captain to Wayne Carey. Uh, one
1: three- of the toughest.
3: Yeah. Yeah, One of the, the best player I've ever played with or against. Yeah. Um, so I was 97 games into my career, three games shy of 100 games, vice captain, five years into my career, and on the surface, performing, functioning, successful, confident arrogant cheeky all of that sort of stuff so still no one knew around you no no one knew and, and I didn't know so right. I'm driving home on this Monday night 26th of July 1993 Arden Street to where I was living was about a 20 minute drive and halfway home on a, at a set of traffic lights waiting, waiting for them to go green and I burst out crying now I was wearing a cap this night and I grab and this is it's pitch black dark and this might be hard for your audience but I'm going to illustrate what I did. I had a cap on and I grabbed my cap with my right hand and I grabbed the peak of the cap and I tilted it down to cover my right-hand side of my face and I pointed my head inboards in the car. The reason I did that was the fear that came over me of anybody else outside the car seeing me emotional, seeing me cry, recognising who I was and then making a judgement. Why is he crying? He's soft, he's weak, he's a sook, that's poor. So I, I I felt this overwhelming sense of shame and embarrassment because I was vulnerable and emotional. Up until that moment, I'd only ever seen my dad cry once. And I love my dad. And he's been in audiences many times over the journey. And this is not in any way, shape, or form pointing any responsibility for my dad to my dad, because he's been a wonderful role model in my life. But when you're a young guy, a young kid growing up, and you've only ever seen your dad cry once when his mother passed away, you start to mirror behavior of influential men in your life and my dad was one and I mirrored this behavior this flawed way of thinking that men don't cry and men that do cry are weak and they're soft and in an AFL context if you're weak and soft they won't trust you and if they don't trust you they won't want to play with you that was my belief that was my thinking that underpinned the way that I reacted when I got emotional in the car because of the fear. I had so much shame at that moment because I felt that I was weak, I was soft, I was I was, I was, was not in control of the situation and my total inability and emotional maturity to understand what was unfolding was frightening. Mm-hmm. So what I did, I managed to get home, I parked my car, I was engaged for six months to my fiancée, now my wife, a mother of our three kids, And I sat in the car for an hour and a half because of the shame and the guilt and the embarrassment that I felt about myself because I believed that if I walked in the door and showed this vulnerability and emotional to my partner she would lose respect, pack her bags and go back to Sydney. So I sat in the car almost like a coward because I was too scared to show her what was really happening. I managed to go inside after about an hour and a half because the tears stopped and I did the same thing for the next two weeks. I walked inside, put my bag down, sat in the same room as my fiance, and I didn't speak. And I didn't speak because I didn't know how to. See, I've grown up in a world where Hmm. I talk about safe topics, footy, kids, family, work, weather, cars, whatever it is. Hmm. And safe topics to me are topics that are not about us. It's not putting us in a vulnerable position. So at that moment I effectively had a nervous breakdown in the car and the reason why I didn't... Or couldn't talk to my fiance Rachel at the time. I didn't have the skill set to be able to think, feel, and communicate what I was feeling mm. and what I was thinking. No, I think that's the key point. So isn't I just it? shut it down. Yeah, yeah. And that and that was that was the same thing that depression. happened for two weeks. Yeah, yeah. And then I was diagnosed two weeks later with depression um, on the 9th of August, nineteen ninety-three. So when I got my premiership medal, I was three years into a really difficult battle um, that I'd been hiding from everybody, bar my fiance and my doctor including my family, my teammates, my coaches, my supporters in the industry for three years. I invested all of my time into hiding it because wow. of a shame. So fast forward
2: that to 2006, in that 10-year period, was, was it something you were still hiding or yep. did those close to you
3: nope. know about it? There was four people in 12 and a half years that knew. Yeah. My right. doctor at North, Harry. Yeah. Six years after being diagnosed, playing with the Sydney Swans in my second year, I made a decision during a training session during June of 1999, three months away from winning my third best and fairest. Uh, to go and ask for help. I was a borderline alcoholic and a pothead by that stage. I never missed a training session, never missed a game of footy, multiple best and fairest winner, premiership player, all Australian, state representative. And I did that uh, whilst living with um, depression, anxiety and obsessive compulsive disorder, using drugs and alcohol to self-medicate. I went and asked for help, Tom Cross, and then I was introduced to an amazing lady psychiatrist who helped me reframe how I think and how I behave, how I manage these conditions. So, from the date of diagnosis until October of two thousand and five, it was twelve years where I hid it from everybody, bar four people: three professionals and my wife. Mm-hmm. And no one else knew.
1: And last week we interviewed Graham Olford, who talks about his work with functioning, you know, very high end functioning. Uh, addicts who Mm. use alcohol and drugs to mask their, that's the way they deal with it. They don't know any other way. And so he gives them reference tools that you just talked about, how you thought about it, how you communicated it to yourself first. That then gave you perspective to then how to introduce other people into it. What was the, when you did finally put your hand up, just two questions around this. What was the thing that absolutely amazed you the most about people and what probably disappointed you the most about people?
3: Um... What amazed me the most was all of the things that I thought I'd lose for 12 and a half years while I hid my conditions, I didn't lose. Um, And the liberating response that I got once the story went to print on the 1st of March 2006 was life-changing. And I say liberating in two respects. One was the first time in 12 and a half years that I was being my true self I wasn't trying to pretend to anybody outside of those four key people that I was happy and healthy. I was just myself. And the other liberating part was the fact that people just accepted me. Mm. So that was that was a life-changing moment in my life. The thing that disappointed me the most was that there were a couple of key people in my life that wanted to be negative. They're not in my life anymore. Yeah, And I won't apologise for that. Should you? People choose to judge me differently or negatively because I live with mental health conditions. That's their choice. Mm. But I will always make the ultimate choice of whether or not I tolerate that or I make a different decision to move in a different direction. And that's what I've done three times. Wow. A quick pause in the podcast. Yeah, if anybody's uh, feeling like they're a little bit overwhelmed or upset about anything that we've discussed today, Pete or Rick, or there's something that I've shared that has triggered them, um, then I would really encourage them to reach out to Lifeline 13 11 14. That's 13 11 14. If you're not comfortable doing that, which is fine, pick up the phone and make a time to go and see your doctor. Go and talk to them. Um, And if you've got someone in your network that you trust, your wife, your husband, your friend, a colleague, a manager, um, anybody that you trust and you need or feel that you need to be able to talk to somebody, then that would be a fantastic starting point.
2: Just talking about footy, Wayne, 282 games uh, at the highest level. Uh, Incredible achievement. How many for North Peak? 184. uh, 184, (laughs) yeah. Uh, 94, 95,
1: best and fairest. I feel, like I feel like you just slipped into Bruce McEvaney yeah. now You're just going with the stats. Oh,
2: I
3: remember Wayne, you know. Well, let's be nice. honest. What just for he... those
1: who don't know, Pete is an absolute... <laughs> he's got blue and white just running through his veins, so... Well, well apparently, remember,
3: apparently we shared beers after the 96 grand final. I don't remember the that. Hotel honest, in if Richmond. there's a party,
1: Kacos <laughs> is there. If there's free beer, he, you know, he just yeah, there's get behind it. free beer
3: there, Well, uh, yeah, Steve-O actually
2: uh, put the uh, medallion around my neck as well, so I have actually had a... Um, anyway i digress (laughs) but um to you know 94 95 best and fairest 96 premiership you're all australian in 99 Mm. as well that was the same year you won a sydney correct bnf as well um a lot of games there like to talk about how you see the sporting world now and and again i'm not just talking afl here i want to open up to the sporting world so what was the sporting world in the 90s and the and the and the differences right now and then looking at what's really going on there's a you know uh, in terms of the sports person
3: of today and the pressures that they're under, I think uh, the industry back when I was playing was archaic, it was um, old school, uneducated, ignorant would be a word that I was I would comfortably use in in that description of what the industry was like because and with all due respect, I'm not pointing the finger at anybody we didn't we didn't know we didn't understand what mental health conditions, we, we, we were not educated, we didn't have the skill set, compassion or the empathy to understand, respect and accept people were dealing with these conditions. And I contributed to that. So I wasn't ready at the time, my club wasn't ready and the industry wasn't ready to have these honest conversations. I think we've changed that over a period of time, we're getting better, but we have so much more work to to do in the industry that, you know, I've been lucky enough to be involved in. But, but I would extend that more broadly, to every sporting organisation and code at the elite level across the country. And, and, and I, I say that with a level of insight, but, but also an understanding. When a 17-year-old skinny kid from Warrnambool called Wayne Swass comes in the door at an AFL football club, or any kid for that matter what we do as an industry in a code is we incubate that kid into an environment that gives him the best opportunity to maximize his natural talent and his natural talent his skill his aptitude and his willingness and determination to become the best footballer he can be and this is the same for female sports and female athletes but the focus is almost exclusively on how do we support the athlete when we look at a human being There's the athlete part of them, but then there's also the person part of them. And I see too often, and there's still examples all the time in our industry and other industries, where we wrap these individuals into an environment that gives them the best opportunity to be the best athlete. And that's fantastic because that's their chosen career. To support that, you look at any AFL club now and you'll have a strength, conditioning, medical rehabilitation team of between 20 and 30 people at any AFL club. And that has a myriad of people in that team that are there to help the players prepare, perform, rehabilitate, recover, get ready for this demanding, challenging industry of AFL football. But it's solely focused on the physical part of the person. What I see is this significant investment into those teams, and I understand that. But I know of one AFL club in Melbourne that doesn't have a part-time psychologist. Mm. I sit back and go... What am I missing? We support the physical part of the person, but we're not supporting with the appropriately qualified and skilled resources, psychologists, psychiatrists, welfare officers, properly trained and qualified people. We're not putting those same resources into our football club to help players and people deal with stressful situations. I was taught, educated, and helped to deal with stress in one area of my life and one area only on a footy field. And make no mistake, it's stressful. It's combative. It's confrontational. It's all of those things. So it's two hours a week. It is. But I could cope in that environment because all of my training and education helped me cope. The uh, the 1996 grand final, I was privately hiding depression, anxiety and obsessive compulsive disorder. I was suicidal and I was able to play and function in the biggest game of my sporting career because I had a skill set and a toolbox which allowed me to cope on a footy field moment I was off a footy field, I didn't have that training or educational toolbox which allowed me to cope with life. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the big issue here for all sports at the elite level is start to redirect some of our focus on the emotional well-being and mental health of our people because if we can do that, a happy and healthy person will be a successful athlete. But you can be a high-functioning and successful athlete, but you can also be suicidal. And we need to bridge that gap and bridge it quickly. And surely that's the lesson
1: here, isn't it? I mean, you know, I think think 10 years ago, you could almost be forgiven for saying, I didn't know. But when you've got a high-priced recruit like Tom Boyd putting his hand up in the most recent of times to say, at 23 years of age, I'm done. I can't deal with the pressures of the challenge. He was known as the $7 million man. He virtually almost won a premiership off his own skill set, as you say, and yet he's prepared to walk away, and so there's more to life than being great for two hours a week. I've got another 166 hours in the week to sort of you know, you know, deal with, and I think you've just summed it up. The tools that we teach players to be their best for two hours, surely we can give them the same tools through the right Coaching, i.e., the right qualified coaching, and I think you shouldn't underestimate the the work you've done here as well. If I'm going to go climb Everest, I want to sort of you know speak to someone who's actually been there, done it, not someone who's written a book about it. Mm. So you've been through it. You know, you've obviously got a role to play here, as you're already doing, and a great role to play. But surely that's the lesson here, Wayne. We we've got to give people across all platforms the tools. Otherwise, um, we we have to take ownership of, of some of the challenges they're going through. Surely,
3: yeah. Look, I I, I you know. Elite sport is one environment, but you know, think about businesses. When we recruit someone in to do a job, we wrap around the framework and the environment that allows them to develop in their role to do their job. That's great, mm. but that's the same application in relation to elite sport. Wrap them around or put them into an environment and give them the support and the structure and the training to do their job as best as they can. Yeah. It's half of the equation in business or in sport. Are we wrapping around the resources, the education, the environment, the conversations, the leadership, the training, the experiences that allows the person to do their job well but to cope with the challenges that life may throw at them, challenges in a professional sense, challenges in a personal sense? There are millions of people every day in Australia who are dealing with significant mental health conditions who are fronting up every day and are doing it in silence and privately because of the fear and the shame that I felt, um, they're doing a remarkably good job under difficult and trying circumstances. But we talk a lot about our people being the most important asset yeah. that we have in business and in sport. But maybe one skill set. We need to live and breathe that. Yep. What does that really mean? Yep. Are we su- are we providing a safe, supportive, inclusive, non-judgmental environment that allows the person to be the best in their role? as well as the best version of themselves? Mm. That's a question people need to ask. And, and, and the, the two other things that I want to drop into this, and I haven't said this – I've said this privately quite a bit. My chairman and I went to the AFL and the Players Association in 2006, sat with both of those groups, and said openly, mental health is a big problem within our industry. It's 2019. Yep. And that's frustrating And it's not about us, but we flagged this with the AFL and the Players Association in 2006 that this is an issue we need to begin to address it. We've had 13 years where we've started to slowly, very painfully sometimes, see some traction. Yes, it's an issue. Yes, we need to start doing something about this. The greatest fear I've always had about this game is that, and I hope I'm horribly wrong on this, I worry that we will lose a player to this issue and then watch what the response will be. Why does that have to happen? It doesn't have to happen. There have been some situations where we've had players who are clearly unwell. We're lucky and fortunate that that hasn't happened. But if we don't really start to tackle this issue properly for our players, our coaches, our administrators and our supporter base, we will continue to lose players. And I do have a fear that we will lose an AFL player at some point because we haven't done enough, mm.
1: and I think that's where the environment that you're talking about has to be so uh, comforting for the player to put his hand up. Um, but I think there's other environments too. Uh, you know, I, I'm really big on the home front. You know, I think as parents, I mean, everyone listening to this particular podcast, um, you know, they worked in a professional sense, Pete. They work in a, you know maybe a, a, a very demanding industry, but they'll also go home. What's that environment like? Is that an environment where someone could put their hand up and say? I'm not doing too well. Yeah. No judgment, just I want to put my hand up. You know, I, is, I is think
2: metaphorically something? speaking, you know, it's interesting to hear Wayne talk about the toolbox and, yep. and the footy field. Well, the footy field is the boardroom to a yep. lot of business people yep. and they've got their coping mechanisms, they've got their toolbox of the, and, and they're, they're, they're somewhat different people mm. within the... Office environment. Well, people
1: aren't always their behaviours, are they? Well, that's it. So but then you're
2: right. Then, then what are they taking home?
1: Yeah. Well, that's the thing I'm sort of really passionate mm. about because, yeah, we're into holistic stuff, and you know this this podcast has really grown legs around this particular topic because we're now passionate about and it, rightfully so. It's, and we've we've come to the point where we believe that the more discussions like this that are out there can only give the the right environment for people to put their hand up and say, "I'm not doing that well."
3: Mm. Here's a thing that I'll ask both of you. How many people do you reckon once they walk out the door of their house, they put a Superman cape on and they put a mask on? Yeah, plenty. And that's a protective mechanism.
1: Are you talking about 100% of the – I would say it'd be 90-something. The vast yeah. majority <laughs>
3: of people – and I was as guilty of this. Yeah. And there are still moments where I default to the mask goes on and the cape goes on because I want to protect myself. Mm. But I ask that question in a business context. Mm. Are we inspiring and empowering our people – to want to come to work and give everything they've got over an eight-hour day and invest into the business, or are we creating and part of a culture where people are walking in there and they're putting up the facade Mm. and they're shit scared of the reaction and the response that people will have towards them if they find out that they're going through difficult challenges. That's one of the big challenges, isn't it? Absolutely, because what it means is we're employing people that aren't really giving everything of themselves in relation to the role that we're employing them for. So when you have an environment that is open, honest, respectful, accepting and non-judgmental, you're creating a space for people to come into where they can feel valued, seen, heard, respected, understood. They feel that they can talk to somebody within their team, their manager, their boss, their colleague, their partner, whoever it might be. I'm not sleeping well at the moment. I'm starting to feel agitated. I'm starting to feel overwhelmed. I'm not sure what I should do. Giving people that opportunity gives them an opportunity to control the narrative, allows them to voice what they're thinking and they're feeling. And if you think about it more broadly, and I've, I've been fortunate enough to have a number of stories shared with me from people that have done this for people who are clearly under emotional stress. And there's one that sticks with me with a business in the city here in Melbourne. And the manager just gave one of his um, team leaders an opportunity. He'd noticed over a six-month period that this person was really starting to struggle. All he did was park the business needs, started to invest into this person, suggested that we've got some uh, avenues or pathways to help. We'll pay for it. We'll support you. You've got your job. Do what you need to do to get healthy and well. This man was going through a marriage breakup. He'd been um, gradually being disconnected as a result of the stress with his kids, went and got help, reconnected with his kids, saved his marriage. What that really means is that CEO's decision to park the business and have a business discussion and have a human being discussion with that person that needed that support at that yeah. moment and that, and that encouragement, he has an employee for life. Yeah. That CEO showed me the email message that that team leader sent him about three or four months after he went and got professional help.
1: Yeah.
3: He thanked him for saving his marriage, thanked him for saving his relationship with his kids, and thanked him for saving his life. Mm. What does that mean for businesses? Mm. If we invest into our people when they need our support unconditionally, that CEO has a person that will give him everything he has got for as long as he chooses to stay with the business.
1: And the economic return That's, is just a bonus. Yeah. Of
3: course, but what about the culture that breeds? Absolutely. That is a business that I want to be a part of. Of
1: course, and an environment you want to be in every day. Wayne, we, so where would you start if you're a business owner right now?
2: Just a quick tip for, for a business owner right now that goes, you know, I want to actually go down this path. Yeah. I want to embrace it. But, you know, it's, it's almost unravelling certain things at times if a business has gone... The other way. Yeah, because
1: they they spend most of their time looking at the numbers and yeah. looking at the economic realities where instead of saying, you know, out of ten how did you sleep last night, ten unbelievable, you know, five or less is not great. Where were you? No one's worried about that. That's They're right. Saying, so
2: how would you bring it all yeah, back there's, as a, there's as a, a
3: quick? Tip? There's a there's a couple of things that I would suggest. Um I'm not sure if you're across Simon Sinek. Yes. yes. Uh, a remarkable <laughs> the power man. Of life. Yeah. So um I, I consume his content content consistently and He uh, shared a little video, about a a 60-second video recently about uh, an empathetic leader. And the example that he shared, which resonates with me greatly, is that let's say, for example, somebody has missed their sales targets for the last three months. Um, A a leader who's not empathetic would walk in and go, and I'm going to pick you, Rick. Rick, um, you've missed your numbers for the last three months. Um, Unless things pick up, I'm not not sure. I, I can't guarantee you anything. Does yep. that empower? Does that inspire you to take that on board and go out and try and achieve your targets? No, it's a really terrible message. Just puts it means more stress on me. It means <laughs> that I don't believe in you. Yeah. Um, I haven't got. I've lost confidence in you. Yep. And the future is questionable mm. for you. Whereas an empathetic leader would do something like this. Hey Rick, I, 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 you, know, you haven't you haven't hit your targets for the last three months. Let's put that to the side. Let's go and have a coffee. Yeah. Let's get out of the office. We sit down. We're in a cafe. We have a coffee. Mate, is everything okay? Yep. What can I help you with? This is an environment where I just want you to be honest. If there's something that you're really struggling with, if there's something in your life personally or professionally that is causing you stress, that is having an impact on your ability to do your job, if you trust me enough, tell me what that is, because all I want to do right here, right now, is I want to support you and understand how I can support you so you can start to work your way through that. Yeah. That's an empathetic leader. Outstanding. Right. Yeah. So that's a really that's a practical thing because our default position is to criticize and judge people. Yeah. That doesn't inspire or empower people. Yeah. And the other thing that I would also suggest is, and this is only my opinion. Leadership, you ask people what leadership means, they'll give you a, a, a wide variety of what it means. Yeah. I think the greatest display of leadership is vulnerability. Yeah. Authenticity. Be- because when you, when you show vulnerability and you front up and you are your true self, warts and all, you are showing the people that look up to you that you lead or you're responsible for, shit, even he's stressed. Even he <laughs> yeah. has shit going on in his life. Or even, I never knew that about her. Mm. That's amazing. And that shows that you're human. And one of the things with with Pucker Up, our vision is to create the environments that allows every person to have authentic and genuine conversations around mental health and emotional well-being. That's our vision. Mm. Our vision lives and breathes inside the walls of Pucker Up. I have conversations with my staff, my chairman, um, my board members, everybody that's a part of Pucker Up. We have open Honest conversations all the time. And last year I had two significant bouts of anxiety. I ring my chairman, who you know, and I tell him. I say, mate, I'm struggling at the moment. Went and saw the GP. I'm back on medication. I'm starting to sleep well. I'm exercising, getting my diet under control, but I need you to know. I just need you to know what's going on in my life. So if I don't lead by example, how can I inspire other people to do the same? And pucker... Its definition is authentic and genuine. I need to be authentic. It's It's a Hindi word. Mm. I need to be authentic and genuine about my health and well-being because if I'm not, I compromise it. So it's a daily reminder. They're two important values that I live and breathe, but they're two important values that we are trying to empower, educate and inspire everyone that we come Mm. into contact with. Take the mask off. Take the cape down. And live your life honestly and openly because when you do that, you give yourself the opportunity to get healthy and well again. But you also give yourself an opportunity to recalibrate. And what I mean by that is how many people are trying to meet the unrealistic expectations of other people and society? Too many of us. And if we're trying to meet those expectations, in my opinion, we'll never meet them. What's the risk there? We fail. So again, I'm challenging people and and hopefully trying to educate and empower people. Don't try to meet other people's expectations. Set your own. What's what's relevant, what's important, what's valuable to you? They are the expectations that, in my opinion, you need to be working towards achieving. Brilliant.
2: Wayne, I want to take the conversation to the coaches and mentors that people would have in their life, and I want to take you back to a – to a coach of yours called Dennis Pagan and, uh, you know, regarded as um, – well, he was a team of the century coach for the Kangas and uh, regarded as one of the best coaches that's ever coached. He coached you for a big part of your career, didn't he, from the mm, under Eleven
3: Yeah, 11 years at senior level and two in the under-19s. Yeah. I
2: want to take you to 1997 and it was a prelim final against St Kilda. Yep. And um, you got rubbed out. Yep. Yep, yeah, you were rubbed out for that game and uh, same with Glenn Archer – and North got beaten, convincingly, in that game. And, um, and there was a fair bit of spotlight on... The two of you guys, because you should were have such walked
3: sh- out of the race, shouldn't we? <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: Arch tells me, and that um, he's he, the he, Shin,
3: he, he's the Shinburner of the century. century. That's right. Sh- yep. He show he he did not show any of those <laughs> characteristics at that moment. Well, he, he wasn't didn't, smart
1: didn't, either because he made himself a very big target when he should have been making himself as small as possible. Well,
2: right? he, he grabbed you and said, Schwatter let's let's get out of here." Yeah. Um, pagan's missing, but... making a beeline for us, but you said, "No, no, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna stick around." Talk us through what what happened there and what that led to.
3: Yeah, so my reason for standing in the race and not agreeing with what Arch said was that I believed at the time, we just lost the prelim final to St Kilda. I was rubbed out for four weeks, Arch too. So your vice captain and one of your best defenders is missing from a really important game. And when Arch said, let's go, I said, no, let's stay here because my thinking, which I thought was really rational – Stay in the race, Dennis will see us, he'll give us a clip, and then he'll walk inside and he'll give the blokes that actually lost the game the biggest clip. It didn't work out that way because, unbeknownst to me, I'm standing in the race thinking the whole time, at least Arch is with me here, he's going to wear some of this and we'll be okay. I didn't realise that my focus was watching Dennis walking from the coach's box across the ground, get to getting to the bottom of the race where he just launched. By this time, Archer's gone down the race, walked out onto the ground and was behind all of the players. And when Dennis started, I saw Archer and I said, are you kidding? I said, mate, we're in this together. Dennis started, and, and rightly so, it was, a, it was a fearful spray and people have seen the vision. It's easy to see what was said, but what you didn't see was the following 15 minutes. And it was, it was an almighty bake, justifiably so, very emotional, very disappointed, very angry, and he gave Arch and I an incredible um, going over. But but upon reflection, I was very angry at the time. I was upset. I knew I'd done the wrong thing. My former had tapered off in 97. I wasn't as committed or prepared to do all the things that I had done previously to become a reasonably decent player up until that moment. Truth I'd probably celebrated the premiership win a bit too much through 97 but I'm glad Dennis did what he did on that night because the moment the team meeting finished after the prelim loss I walked out of the rooms the room that we were meeting in the first person I saw was my dad and I made a decision at that moment I said I'm not playing with this club again I mm. can't do this anymore I need a change and that led to me pursuing an opportunity with the Sydney Swans. And I'm, I'm glad that Dennis did what he did at that time because it made me sit back and go, well, what do I do? What do I want to do with my career? Mm. So I knew at that time that the relationship had got to a point where it was broken. Dennis is a great coach and got the best out of us and, and got the best out of me. But Dennis's philosophy was ingrained in fear and intimidation. Yeah. I was four years into a private battle with mental health conditions.
1: Which he was unaware of. No,
3: and I made sure that that yep. was the case. I didn't yep. want him to know. So that I've got to be fair to Dennis. Yep. He, he had no knowledge no. of what was going on. But instead of being hit over the head constantly with a big stick, what I wanted was I just want him to wrap me in his arms, give me a hug and tell me I'd be okay. Mm. But I never got that and I never gave him the opportunity to give me that because mm. I didn't believe that he would give me that. So his response was the tipping point for me to go, I've got to take charge of this situation. And I'm grateful because I went to Sydney and I believe over four and a half years I played a higher level of more consistent footy with the Sydney Swans. I extended my career and in return the Kangaroos got Shannon Grant who was a premiership player and a Norm Smith medalist. Yeah. So it was a win-win-win. A quick pause in the podcast. Yeah, if anybody's uh, feeling like they're a little bit overwhelmed or upset about anything that we've discussed today, Pete or Rick, or there's something that I've shared that has triggered them, um, then I would really encourage them to reach out to Lifeline, 131114. That's 13, 11, 14 If you're not comfortable doing that, which is fine, pick up the phone and make a time to go and see your doctor. Go and talk to them. Um, And if you've got someone in your network that you trust, your wife, your husband, your friend, a colleague, a manager, um, anybody that you trust and you need or feel that you need to be able to talk to somebody, then that would be a fantastic starting point.
1: But I think the other thing for our listeners who don't really follow AFL, you know, Dennis Pagan is a Hall of Fame coach. As you mentioned, he was elite at coming through the ranks himself as a coach. He worked with the under 19s He was like the absolute go-to guru for finding and uh, identifying and developing young talent. Father mm-hmm. figure to a lot. Very of, much so. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people who, when you think of you know the great coaches of the modern era, you know, so Alec Ferguson. If you read his book, he's as tough as nails. Oh, you right. wouldn't want to get on the wrong side of him. Yep. Today, I'm seeing in the AFL space, coaches saying, hey, mate, let's go have a chat and get up and let's go for a walk around the tan <laughs> and can deliver just as powerful a message without all the fire and brimstone. They've just adapted with the times, I think, is what I'm hearing there. And so no disrespect to Dennis. He did the best job he knew how to do and got results and you know, why would you go against it? And this?
3: Dennis was a product of Ron Barassi, Slug Jordan, Ray yep. Jordan, and they yep. were similar tough, coaches. So I'm not, I'm not blaming Dennis. No, no, of course not, not. And, and he, he did a remarkably good job with a very talented, immature, irresponsible group of players and turned them into an incredibly competitive, successful group of players yeah. through that period. But to your point also, Rick… Um, I, I think the modern-day coaches have had to evolve yep. because that mentality doesn't work anymore. Correct. And the generation of players coming through now are different and they have different expectations. They won't
1: respond to that either. No,
3: I? And, and I think what's 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 really nice is that, you know, from a distance I've seen the evolution of Nathan Buckley. Yep. I've seen the evolution of Paul Roos and um, Luke Beveridge. I love the way they coach. yeah because they care about their players deeply. And I think when you develop relationships with your players that are not only at a professional but a personal level, you understand if they're married and the names of their kids, you invest into that relationship, what you're actually going to get in return is manifestly more, significantly more, because all players, in my opinion, want the love and acceptance and respect of their coach. If you invest into that with each of your players yep. to the best of your ability, your players will go above and beyond for you as a coach.
1: And like you, all, I'm observing a lot of those from afar. I get the great fortune of, of observing Bucks up close and everyone who knows me well says, man, he's just changed over the last year. I would say, well, you know what? It's I been a journey. Probably about a seven-year journey. And yep. he even said on this program that, you know, with, with maturity and with experience, you'd like to think you're rough, you know, rounding out some of the edges and you, you're mm. developing along the way. But what I think is really important now is I see local footy, i see local netball i see local sport that my kids have grown up and gone through from the coaches who give the fire and brimstone trying to sort of vicariously live through their children and try and maybe be like their coaches <laughs> they idolise to see them become far more consultative to say hey little Johnny little Jill what's it going to take for you to have a successful year let's, the scoreboard let's not worry about that what would it take for you to have a cracking game today what do we need to do give them the environment to go and play that give them the self-esteem lesson to, to feel good about themselves are you like me when you see that in a local sporting environment you know really your heart fills up and you think "Yeah, you know, we're on the right path or is there still too much of the, the former latter stuff. That,
3: that would be in the minority. Yeah, okay. Where I see those examples. I see still far too many of the opposite examples. And I said before we started this podcast that my kids play sport. If there's a coach or a parent that is being negative, sending poor messages to players, I have to walk over the other side and I'll stand on yep. my own Yeah. 50 to 100 metres away. Yeah. Because of my own experiences, that doesn't sit comfortably with me. I'm not comfortable with that because I think the messages that we send our kids can be really destructive and yep. negative. And I'll share a story with both of you. I, I got invited to deliver a presentation a couple of years ago to um, all the junior coaches in the town that I live in and delivered the presentation, opened the floor up for questions and I had the two co-coaches who were coaching the under-16 teams and their opening question to me was, we got this shit of a kid He's a little prick, he's disruptive, doesn't listen to our messages, creates all these sort of problems both at training and during the game. What would you do? And I don't know why I said this but I answered it by saying, tell me a bit about the boy. They both looked at me and they said, what do you mean? I said, explain to me something about this kid. And then they took a deep breath and then they started to tell me that six months earlier this 15-year-old boy lost his dad. Yeah. So I said, okay, let's all put ourselves in the shoes of a 15-year-old boy that's coming to terms with the loss of his father, this influential male role model's not in his life anymore. I'm 15 years of age. I'm changing hormonally. Physiologically, I'm changing. I'm a male. I'm trying to meet the expectations of what other people think I should be as a teenage boy, what society expects. And then throw into the mix there that somehow with a, a limited emotional toolbox and emotional maturity... I've got to digest the fact that the most influential man is not here. Mm. I'm angry, I'm hurt, I'm in pain, I'm upset, I'm feeling all of these emotions. I said, when we look at it that way, does it not give us an insight into why this boy may be, as you described it, disruptive or a little shit of a kid? Mm. And they just silently nodding their head. And then they sort of nervously said, okay, what do we do? I said, forget about footy. Yeah. Forget about what this kid's doing during training or at a football club. Don't criticise him. Don't label him. Don't call him a prick. Don't call him a shit of a kid. Don't be negative towards him. Wrap your arms around this kid every time you see him and let him know that no matter what he's thinking, what he's feeling from this day forward, you are there to support him unconditionally. If he wants to train, let him train. If he wants to play, let him play. But if he doesn't want to, he just wants to stand and watch, allow him to do that. Because right now, this kid needs love. Mm. And coaches outside of parents are just as important as teachers. Yeah, absolutely. And this is what I want to challenge those people that have an opportunity to influence and inspire kids. What message are we sending them? If we are negative, if we are judgmental, if we are criticizing them, then the message is toxic. Mm. Are we empowering? Are we encouraging? Are we supportive? Are we inspiring? That's the gift we've all had. We would all remember fondly the teacher that we loved mm. because they were supportive. Mm. But equally, we all remember the teachers that were assholes. Yeah because of the impact that they had on us yeah, very true that's the yeah. opportunity that coaches and teachers have
1: and so I think if there's anything there for our listeners for the messaging just be very careful about how your words interpret the worlds of the people that you're influencing whether they be your professional uh, sort of people you work with and support crew and your team or whether that be you know the kids that you have the great fortune to coach as a, as a parent and my, my view is my heroes is single mums raising kids oh, I'm um, so
3: glad you said that
1: um, you know because what they can do is just amazing and um, you know my heroes are also any parent who puts their hand up to say, I-, I could just be like most parents, drop my kid off, you know, for a few hours a week training, drop my kid off for a, a game and just go stand on the sides. But I'm putting my hand up to say... I'm going to give my child the same I'm going to give every child in this team a positive sporting experience that hopefully gives them some life lessons as well Mm. as some sporting skills and gives them the chance to be the best version uh, of themselves, which is really what Pucker Up's about to a degree. And I'm so glad to bring it sort of, you know, because I know your time is precious, mate, and we we really do value it. But, Pete, I think it's important to recap over the the Pucker Up message and
3: and, and the learnings today. Can I just – I'm sorry to – Let's – let's. time's time. This is valuable. This okay. is really, I'm enjoying this conversation. We're, we're, we're all conscious of you, <laughs> no, mate. No, it's okay. Us. I want to I I flip this for the moment. I want to ask you a, a, yep. a, a, both a question, and it requires you to be honest. Yep. I do this all the time, and I've been doing these presentations <laughs> for 15 years. I'm nervous. <laughs> Have oh, either of you ever had something along these lines ever said to you, don't be weak, don't be soft, don't be a sook? with all due respect to our female listeners, don't be a girl, whatever that means, stop crying, toughen up, man up, get on with it and don't ever behave like that again. Have you ever had something like that ever said to you?
1: I reckon I'm 100% on all of them. Oh, yeah, yeah,
3: absolutely. Okay, let me ask another question which requires both of you to be honest again because I put my hand up for this. How did it make you feel?
1: Uh, I'll preface it by saying it it depends on who it came from. If it was someone I really, truly valued, it made me actually – Toughen up, and and it made me sort of almost question whether I was. So your decision
3: masculine. to toughen up wasn't about your expectations, but no, It was, but about, it was about meeting their expectations, 100%, 100%. right? Hundred yep. percent. So it's not yours. And we've and had this
1: privately, so I, yep. I'm as authentic as I can be. Yep. If that, and I, I think I've told this before, but if that was my brother, who's six three, my heart across his shoulders, a tough. Mm. Yeah, you know, I saw him cry once in our growing up life if he told me to toughen up i would just do it and yep. when i sit in the dentist chair and it's like you know do you want the injection or can i just drill i was pitching my brother over my shoulder going you toughen up so i do but if it's someone other than that i probably would let it go through to the keeper a little bit depending on who it was hmm. that's the best way i can say that
3: what about you thanks rick what about you pete yeah
2: i, I think Exactly right. I it was growing up. I mean, as a in, a in a sports mad family, sports mad kangaroo family, um, and the only boy, it was there. There was this responsibility mm. for me. Wayne, my father died when I was twelve, so I, I took on a fair bit of responsibility. It's a Big responsibility there. as a twelve-year-old. Yeah, so I, I didn't. I didn't get a whole lot thrown on me. I took it upon myself mm. uh, to do that. But certainly as a as as a younger. Um, sort of kid playing footy and so forth. That was just that was the way it was. You're mm-hmm. you're a boy. You got to be tough. You got to do this. Yeah. You got to go in hard at the ball, and you got to do all that sort of stuff. So that's sort of big what, guys don't
1: cry. You're yeah. the man of the house now. All
2: that sort of stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think the rest of it was for me, and I'm going to use the word self inflicted, shall I say? But I, I I had that onus upon myself because I felt <coughs> that is the part I needed to play. Mm. Um, so I think from from a teenager then. I believe that I put that upon myself, yep. um, which sort of goes back to this in your, these sorts of conversations can happen very, very early on you know as a six or seven and eight year old it's mm-hmm. not just about the conversations that happen as a 15 16 17 year old I, I think that's it um, it can sometimes be inbred far mm-hmm. earlier so you got than what hundreds we of thousands
1: imagine. of hours of you know self-talk pre-framing and then someone comes along and says let's just change that all of a sudden and that's why there's a 10-year gap between you know 96 and 2006 mm-hmm. It takes a long time to rewire. yeah the yourself.
3: reason the reason. and I appreciate your honesty both of you the reason why I asked that question I did it again I do it all the time I do it all the time. <clears throat> 15 years of doing those presentations, every time I ask those questions, the responses like last night were, I felt shit, I felt small, disrespected, not valued, not supported, not understood, not accepted. The reason I ask these questions is what messages are we sending ourselves and our kids? Mm -hmm. If we, and this goes back to why I believe we lose six men on average every day in Australia. Boys and girls are born emotionally expressive and I'll, I'll, I'll share why I believe that fundamentally. But if we regurgitate the messages that have been handed down for decades that we've been subjected to, what we do is we narrow the skill set of emotional intelligence and toolbox that our boys have. That's why I believe we lose so many men on average every day in Australia, because they don't have the emotional toolbox or confidence to think, feel, and communicate what they're going through. I'm yet to have one person in 15 years say that I felt respected, accepted, (laughs) heard, seen, understood, supported, loved, and valued. Mm. If we hand these messages down to our kids, inadvertently we're narrowing their skill set. Mm. And I ask the audiences, when I, I, I focus on the men and I'll ask the men to put their hands up if they can ever remember a time before about the age of 9 or 10 where they did something, they hurt themselves, they started crying, they didn't judge themselves, they didn't feel shame, guilt or embarrassment. They ran to mum or dad or an influential adult to get their comfort to be to be um, looked after, might have been a Band-Aid on the elbow or the knee, blood cleaned up, you got a kiss on the head, a pat on the bum or a hug and you got told that you'd be okay and you went back to doing what you were doing. Every man always puts their hand up and goes, yeah, I can remember a time like that. Mm. And then I ask, who's carried that way of behaving through as they've got older? No one. Mm. Why do I share that? I share that because I'm absolutely convinced boys and girls are born emotionally expressive and connected because we men put their hand up and they can remember a time where they were that mm. way. Yes. But then they stop behaving that way because of expectation. Men are meant to be tough, stoic, resilient. You don't cry. You don't show vulnerability. You don't show weakness because if you do, you lose respect. That is fundamentally flawed and, to be honest, it's bullshit mm. and it's killing men. Mm. And this is why I passionately believe in the work that we do. We need to change the narrative. The definition of masculinity is taking men Mm. from families and communities every day in Australia. Where's the book written by the author published in what year that says a man can't be strong, stoic, was doing it tough, hardworking, reliable, a leader, decisive, an influencer and a role model as well as loving, nurturing, caring, empathetic, ability to listen, ability to talk and ability to cry. Crying is a way of coping when we're under stress. But what's the first word that most of us say when we cry in front of someone else? I'm sorry. For Mm. what? Yeah. For what? We apologise because it's making the other person uncomfortable. Mm. Stop it. Mm. We have nothing to apologise about. We cry because we're hurting, we're under stress. It's a natural reaction. But we grow up in an environment and a community in a country that goes, that's not acceptable. Mm. Cut it out. What the message is really saying is disconnect emotionally. Yeah. What's the issue there? When we're under emotional stress, if we've disconnected emotionally, we have no capacity to ask for help or to feel, think and communicate what's going on. Mm. we need to reframe it. That's we need to reframe it. When I
1: hear that, Pete, what I hear about Wayne, and if you hear anything throughout all of this interview, listeners, I'm sure you would have heard that Wayne can go to specific dates, specific times when he's had the breakthroughs and and the experiences and he's done two things all the way through. First of all, he's owned up to his part in them. Second of all, he's looked for advice and help from those that are more perhaps skilled in that area. The third thing that he's never lost any traction around is the ability to then take action around that and take ownership of, uh, of that as well. It's not like, give me a pill and medicate me, give me a solution and tell me. It's like, yeah, give me the pathway forward and I'll go through it as well. And he's just given us a great pathway there of learning and understanding about how we're wired up, the language we use and the descriptions we give ourselves and others. Yeah,
2: it really is the, the story. It's so interesting you say that because it sort of I didn't realise what I was saying before, but as a kid... Then as a teenager, I started telling myself a story. Now, I don't know. You've got me thinking now. I don't know where that came from. But I started this story in my head because as a kid I was a certain way. Then as a teenager, all of a sudden, click the fingers and where did that Where yeah. did, that did actually that come, come from? from? Where's so the story. expectation? And they say, you know, the most important words you say are to yourself, about yourself, why you're alone, by yourself. Yeah. So, you know, linguistically and the words
3: are, are just so powerful. And I think you created a story to keep yourself safe.
1: And maybe mm. to to match the circumstances you're in at the time, in many respects, you know it's a it's a deep one, but it's a, it's probably a, you know it's probably a, a, a fundamental example of what you've been talking about the whole way through.
3: We're always telling us we're always creating a story in our own minds, and that's a protective strategy, and that's mm. not to be critical. Um, and, and 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 I just think that we all have the opportunity and the right to sit down and quietly reflect on the lessons and the expectations and the conditioning that we're all subjected to. Mm. Males and females are subjected to significant gender conditioning. Girls wear pink dresses, they play with dolls and they're softly spoken. Boys wear blue shorts, we're in the playgrounds and everything's a bloody competition. It's conditioning. We're conditioning people based on their gender. I loved what you said before, Rick, that you you admire single-parent mums. Yeah. Because... A lot of women, and I'm not trying to represent women because I couldn't do them justice, but we naturally accept and respect women for possessing the feminine traits. Yep. But single parent mums yep. are strong, stoic, resilient, yep. fiercely protective, fiercely yep. loyal. They're the breadwinners, they're the protectors for their children. They yep. are some of the most amazing yep. people that live in our communities. Right? Agree more. But for a man to have the traditional male traits, but also be emotionally connected and expressive, that's wrong with you, mate. Yes. Cut, <laughs> cut that shit out. That's that's not right. It's yeah. grossly no. unfair. And this is why I believe we all need to think about and question the narrative. <laughs> because do we want our kids, when they're under emotional stress, especially our boys, to go, can't cry, not allowed to cry, that's not what a man does, and that to compound the situation? Or do we want our kids, and our boys in particular, to behave in the same way as girls do. I'm in pain, I'm hurting, I'm upset, and I can talk to somebody I trust. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: And I think, you know, this, in in a way of wrapping up, Pete, I mean, I think for us, we, we're passionate about this topic because you know, so many people we've interviewed in the, what is it now, nearly 40... Interviews from the outside looking in, you go. These are successful people. These are just, you know, economically doing incredibly well. They're achieving in, in, in the highest levels. And you know, we've we've interviewed Olympians. We've interviewed sort of you know elite players, elite business people. Yet the amount of times we've heard the percentage numbers freak me out. That it these doesn't people, discriminate, it? doesn't. Does it. And they're saying, you know, uh, thanks for that, but let me just tell you the challenges I've had to go through. So everyone's, um, you know, listening to this uh, interview, as Wayne gave at the very beginning. You know, it's a very close challenge for a lot of people nearby, but we've got to change the wording from mental health and mental illness to, you know, what you use, which I think is far more transformational in terms of the vocabulary thereof. And I think the key message I got out of this is, I think there's three parts to it. Number one, Everyone wants to know what the solution is. Okay, we, we understand it's out there, how do we solve it? Well, it's a bit like saying, uh, okay, we know there's a drug problem, how do we solve it? There's an alcohol problem, how do we solve it? It's not as simple as saying, identify the problem and then solve it. I think the first thing we've got to do is acknowledge it's out there. Number two, Discuss it more as we're doing here, and through that discussion, will come the thinking that allows us to. I mean, I've just had three breakthroughs today just being part of this interview. I can't wait to re-listen to it again and uh, and make sure that I absorb those lessons. Pete,
2: I, I, I love the um, your vision at Pucker Up, Wayne. You know, uh, t- the first part of the vision is to create environments, and I think that's a key yep. message that we need to create that environments for people to sort of step into and have really open and safe discussions yep. around what they're really feeling.
1: And what we talked about at the Collingwood Footy Club is one of our values is care. Mm. So if we actually and, – and those values that we set in um, – when the leadership group back in 2013 came up with the, the side-by-side, they were all very male-dominated, you know, excellence, resilience, you know, all that sort of stuff. Now when you've got belonging, care is two of your big ones and that's had to happen because of the transition from the Collingwood Football Club to the Collingwood Sporting Club where mm. you've got elite netballers, AFLW women, mm. you know, we need to have a caring, belonging environment that gives everybody the chance to put up their hand and say, I'm not doing that well. Mm. And it's not a sign of weakness, it's a greatest sign of strength. Yep. Put your hand up, you'll be supported, not judged. Put mm. your hand up, and there'll be help given, not critiquing. Put your hand up, and you'll be absolutely embraced, not your contract will be ripped up. So, I think if we can give those environments in a professional sense, give everyone the chance to do that. Can I really say this as a passionate husband, parent, you know, as someone who loves the next generation of Australians coming through? I think we need to set this up in the four walls we call home, whatever that looks like. Make sure we're giving you an environment that doesn't make, you know, little Johnny or little Jill or little Achmel and little Ingrid. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter the background. Give them all the chance to be the best versions of themselves by having that open dialogue, by giving that caring environment and giving them the lessons that I think, you know, Wayne shared so much throughout this interview today. Oh, Wayne, I uh,
2: I loved you as a North Melbourne player and I love you even more now with what you're doing and what Pucker Up are doing. It just... Um it's, it's incredible and it's such an important
3: uh, important thing that you're doing. Uh, is there any last words that you want to sort of share with the listeners? Oh, look, I appreciate the chat. I really do. I've, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, there's there's a, there's a couple of things um, that I just want to circle back on and, and that's to pick up a couple of things that you said, Rick. Anybody who's going through difficult challenges and, and you might think that it's something you may never overcome or it's a challenge too far. It's not. Yep. It's, it's possible. Anything's yep. possible. I can honestly say hand on heart, 25 years after starting this journey, I'm grateful for my experiences. As tough and as challenging and as uncomfortable as they were, I'm a better person and, I, and I'm far from perfect. I'm on a journey to continue to learn, to continue to develop and continue to improve. But without those experiences, I wouldn't be the person I am. Without those experiences, I wouldn't be doing the work that I'm now doing. I don't believe people need to fix or solve the problem. Because I think that's unrealistic. I used to think that I was cured and it was important for me to communicate to people that I was fixed because of the perception of what they would think or say. I don't need to be fixed. I'm on a journey and it will go for the rest of my time on earth. So I manage well-being. I'm not trying to find a solution. I'm not trying to find a fix. I don't drink alcohol because I can sleep better. I exercise a lot, I eat healthy, I talk to the key people, and when needed, I go on to medication. I just manage my situation. It's not a a solution, it's not a fix, it's just what I need to do. The reason why I believe that these conversations are incredibly important is the more often that we have these discussions, we're all starting to play a role in the fact that we're normalising mental health and emotional well-being. We need to continue to work tirelessly to create these conversations so mental health becomes a normal part of the health discussion. Physical, emotional, doesn't matter. It's all health. So let's continue to come into these conversations and have these discussions. And in finishing, footy footy gave me a a great, you know, it was a wonderful experience. And if you're a North supporter, you go to a game on a Friday night and we used to play 14 Friday nights during the year too, which is <laughs> crazy located. to think about. Yeah. But, we, but we would give people like yourself, Pete, if we won, joy. If we lost, disappointment. Didn't change your life, I don't believe, in a positive sense. It might have momentarily because we were having a successful period. But I can honestly say that I don't believe it saved a life. We uh, were lucky enough to have our Pucker Up documentary screened on Channel 9 earlier this year. And amongst the hundreds of messages we got, the reason why I love what I do is that every day I get out of bed, there's an opportunity to positively impact a person's life. But more importantly, there's an opportunity to save a person's life. And I've got a message from a lady who I never met. And uh, she sent me, to quote her message, I was flicking on Foxtel recently on a Sunday night, the night the show was aired, and uh, I stumbled across your documentary. And I just want you to know that I was thinking about ending my life that night. Mm. I've parked that decision for the short term. Thank you. I'm going to continue on with my life. Now, that's not about me. That's about the worker pucker up. That's why we do what we do every single day because it is changing and saving people's lives. There is a mother, a sister, an auntie, a friend and a wife who is alive, participating in life sometimes challengingly, with her family and her friends, and I'm so thankful that we have the opportunity to do that for other people.
1: Wayne Schwoss, you've been inspiring. Most importantly, I think you've helped us all make that shift straight away from mental health to mental wellbeing, if we can support people in that. Anyone listening to this... If you think that it's too dark, there are no answers, a solution is a phone call away. The Lifeline line that uh, Wayne...
3: 13,
1: took, 11, 14. I was about to do it, but there we go, 13, 11, 14. Uh, if you can't get your phone going, if you don't have credit on your phone, tap someone on the shoulder, put your hand up. You'll be surprised how many more people will be there for you if you just ask for help it's been an absolute pleasure to be with uh, wayne pete your, your final wrap up because oh
2: look i just want to say thanks wayne it that it, it means a lot to rick and myself and uh, and i know it's going to mean a hell of a lot to a lot of listeners out there and uh, and please you know share this with as many people as you possibly can because this is a message that well and truly needs to be spread um and you know we need to create these environments as pucker up says yeah for every person to have genuine conversations about mental health and emotional well-being. So, Wayne, you've been incredibly generous with your time. Uh, we absolutely love what you're doing, and um, and good luck.
1: And just in finally, wrapping up, don't just share it with your family and friends and loved ones. Share it with those who you think might need it. More importantly, mm-hmm. share it with those you don't think need it because they're probably the ones... Who need it the most? This has been Rick Rushton with my good friend Peter Kakos and our very special guest Wayne Schwass. Pucker up! We'll have all the details on this episode, the links to get in touch. If you want to support them, I think we created a sponsor for uh, the Gravia Media Lunches coming to Pucker Up. I think so. We, uh, yeah, it's not. We don't do this for the money, but we still take the money if you want to donate to Pucker, <laughs> Pucker Up because uh, it's it's an organisation doing amazing work. Wayne
0: Schwass, thank you so much.
3: Thanks, Rick. thanks. Greg.
0: We trust you enjoyed listening to Voices of Value, a shared conversation between Rick Rushton and Peter Kakos. Their views are not necessarily those of the wider world, but they should be. If you're keen to enhance the quality of your life even further in the future, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify or your preferred podcast source. Our website is VoicesOfValuePodcast.com and we welcome both your feedback and ratings on the content we provide. Join the conversation again next week when Peter and Rick continue the search for truth, justice and the value-added way.